Hello and welcome to Back Talk. On this show, it's a conversation between two feminist people about this week in pop culture. I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor of Bitch Media, which means I've been spending uh, this week finding beautiful images of Aziz Ansari's face to put on our website. (laughs) (laughs) And there's so many. There's so many good ones. When I look at a photo of his face, I just think of his voice in my head being like, hey. (laughs) So right now on our homepage is a big, wonderful image of Aziz Ansari from his new uh, Netflix show, Master of None. Awesome. And I am Amy Lamb, the associate editor. And uh, I want to take this time to shout out all of our donors for um, the magazine and subscribers to the magazine. Um, Donors to, I guess, Bitch Media. It's like um, sometimes when people subscribe or donate money to us, uh, you can write little comment notes on the bottom. And I didn't know this until... Uh, Sarah and I kept getting forwarded little messages being like, thanks for the podcast, guys. We're like, we love back talking. It's so endearing and it makes my heart melt because it's like, um, it just makes our work feel like it's necessary and that y'all are listening and that you actually want to read other other content that we put out. So thanks for that. Like, that's like a really sweet, nice hug from a friend. Yeah. If, yeah. You, if you do wind up subscribing to Bitch or donating because you listen to the shows, you should totally put it in your order comments that you, it's because you listen to the podcast or that you like the podcast because Amy and I will read everyone <laughs> and then start screaming. Yeah. About them. So, uh, Feel free to put that into your order comments if you donate to Bitch, we're a nonprofit, or if you subscribe to yeah. Bitch Magazine. I know that we read them, so shout out to all of you who have written us. I literally can't say all your names. Actually, a couple a couple people have made jokes about the word seminal in their comments because I, I noted a few episodes ago that I hate that word. So... So thank you for your seminal donations. <laughs> That's disgusting. Sorry. Actually, I wanted to do another shout out to um, people who are interested in being involved more in the podcast. Our next episode is in relation to our nerds print issue. The next issue of Bitch Magazine is about nerds. The next issue of Propaganda is going to be about our favorite nerds. And I'm asking people to contribute short audio segments in which they pay tribute to um, a nerdy icon that they love. And so... If you can think of a nerd in your life, fictional or real, anyone from Dana Scully to, you know, Xena, Warrior Princess, to Dr. Mae Jemison or somebody who's in, in real life, um, record a little audio segment about them and why they're important to you and why uh, this nerd is important in your life and send it to me and we'll put it on the next episode of Propaganda. So uh, if you can send it to me by this coming Monday, uh, that's November 16th, I believe, Um record a little voice memo on your phone talking about a nerd in your life, real or fictional, who you think is the best, and send it to me, Sarah, with an H, at b-word.org. Rad. I want to hear about your nerds. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we've gotten some really good ones so far. Yeah, so send it to me, Sarah, with an H, at b-word.org. Um, we should talk about our favorite pop culture moment of the week. Yeah. Uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, my pop culture moment is more of like a current event newsy thing. Um, it's about the student protests at the University of Missouri and um, how they were able to create a movement um, through, you know, protesting. And there was a hunger strike on behalf of one student um, and like the University of Missouri football team. Uh, were on strike they were like we're not going to play until these certain demands are met and one of the demands was that um the university president resign and they made that happen and they're they're protesting because um there have been a lot of like racist events on campus and the university president haven't hasn't really done 
did not do very much to address those things and was in fact like kind of clueless about it and so um it was yesterday or the day before i forget um he resigned uh, tim wolf was just like see you guys that happened um and it's really great to see that you know student protests was able to like create this change however there's like down this backlash where a lot of the black students on campus feel really unsafe because they're getting uh threats um by racists uh so this is like a definitely a news item that i'm keeping an eye out on and uh, i think people should you know, keep up to date on and be informed about what's happening there. Yeah, it's really cool to see the power of student protests. I feel like people often want to write off student activism and say, oh, you know, you're just like a bunch of 19 year olds. You don't know what you're doing. But in this case, the student protests actually led to to real change and became a really high profile thing. That's really cool. Um, My personal pop culture moment of the week is that this week I went to two shows, which never happens. I kind (laughs) of never go to concerts. I listen to music constantly all day long, but I don't really like going to shows because I don't like standing around and part of a crowd and they just go too late and it's expensive. But this last week I went to two shows and they were so both so good. I went to a show um, of Shannon and the Clams, the Oakland Surf Rock Garage group, which was awesome. They were so good. And then just last night, I went to a show um, by uh, Sister Sister Band, The Double Clicks. They're like a nerd rock, really fun band. We've had them on the podcast before, and they sing about everything from Velociraptors to Dungeons & Dragons. So that was a really (laughs) sweet show. For the first segment on the show, we're going to talk about the pretty disturbing case of a police officer named Daniel Holtzclaw, uh, who is facing 36 charges of sexual assault. Um, and his, how his case ties into sort of a, a pattern of uh, sexual assault in the police force in general. Amy, do you want to talk about the case? Yeah. So uh, Daniel Holtzclaw was a police officer in Oklahoma City. And uh, what he was doing was he had been targeting uh, mostly black women um, and sexually assaulting them. Um, so in this case in particular, 12 uh, women came forward and one 17 year old came forward and they're mostly black. Uh, I've heard some reports that, that saying that they were all black, but I, I'm like trying to get all these and all this information together. But the thing that he would do is he would uh, specifically target them and, um, and then sort of like, uh, coerce them, uh, and, or rape them and, and just, or, or sexually assault them. And he would use his power as a police officer to kind of like, um, uh, insinuate that like I can help you get out of trouble if you do this for me or I'm going to get you in trouble if you don't do this for me right exactly yeah. and and the thing is that like he specifically targeted these women because um, they were from low-income communities or some of these women he would like he would pull women over and then go into his cruiser and like check in on records or however they do this stuff to see if the person he pulled over had like prior records um, so that he can see that like oh this person has had a run-in with the law like they are more vulnerable to like my coercion or like my assault because they're less likely to report this because you know uh, people who have been historically marginalized um don't tend to trust law enforcement to like help them out and and in a way like that technique worked because he he had done this for about a year or so i think they they said that like um the earliest case that they, they could find was um in 2013 but the reason why he, he kind of got caught was because um the one of the last women he assaulted um she was like 
she was visiting somebody in this neighbor this neighborhood that was probably in a low-income neighborhood and so Holtzclaw thought that he had like the perfect victim and, and assaulted her but she but she wasn't the type of person who was like I'm gonna take this so she actually went into law enforcement and was like this happened to me and it opened an investigation because then the Oklahoma State P- Police Department went through uh their records of like um I guess whenever a police officer stops somebody, they have to like put it into the records. I stopped this person. So they went in and contacted all the women that he had recorded because he also stopped women off the clock, you know, so they were able to find women that he listed and to ask them, be like, did this happen to you? And by doing that, um, these this handful of women came forward. Uh, and so this speaks a lot to like, um, you know, abuse of power by police, um, the targeting of black women and that like, and that in mass media, this story isn't getting picked up or talked about as much as it really should be. Um, and the fact that like just this, I think it was this week or no, I think it was last week. Um, they picked the jury to try this man and, um, and it's an all white jury when, um, his defense attorneys are questioning the victims. Um, uh, oftentimes they'll bring up like their, their, past or how they were uh, recently incarcerated, you know, to sort of, um, to delegitimize who they are and their stories and their assaults. So this is like, this shines a really big light on, on how black women are treated in the criminal justice system. Yeah. This case brings up so many feelings. Um, and one, one of the feelings I've been having is just how rare it is to actually see a police officer go to trial. I mean, what this guy, um, what, what the women say this guy did is really, really awful. And I'm like, wow, he was fired by the police department and that his badge was taken away and now he's going to trial. Like, it's it's cool to see uh, some, someone actually be prosecuted for this kind of crime who's a police officer because I feel like that so rarely happens and it so rarely happens with cases of police violence that we actually wind up getting that person fired and that they go to trial for it. And that only happened because here, because one of the victims spoke up and was willing to go to the police about another police officer. And actually, this hasn't gotten a ton of coverage in mainstream media, but there was a really excellent report by the Associated Press that looked into Daniel Holtzclaw's case and the the pattern of uh, sexual abuse by police officers. And what they found is that they were trying to look into whether, you know, how often does this happen? And the Associated Press reporters were really frustrated because it turns out that no official entity keeps data on how often this does happen. If a, if a police officer loses their badge because of sexual misconduct on the job, which can be anything from rape to assault to having sex with somebody on, on the job at the office or something like that, there's a whole range there of what sexual misconduct means. Um, there, there's no one who keeps track of how often that happens. And so these Associated Press reporters spent a year investigating how often it does happen and found that over the course of six years in the United States, a thousand police officers has lost, had lost their badges for sexual misconduct. So that means that almost every other day, a police officer has lost their badge for sexual misconduct. And we don't hear about it. And no one's tracking it. Yeah. And it's, and it's really dependent on the people who are victimized to report it. And it's like, like Holtzclaw, I mean, it's no coincidence that he targeted specific people that he knew have already do already feel disenfranchised by the system and that they won't go and report this. Um, and, and uh, it's it's just it's mind-boggling but it, it does probably speak to maybe there is a larger much larger issue of abuse within law enforcement that we're not hearing about and it's just like he just he's one person that got caught yeah he's one person who got caught but how often is this happening because you know an investigation showed that over, you know 
a thousand police officers have done this over the course of six years. And that's just the ones they could find. And that's just the ones where people spoke up and actually brought it to the police and that person lost their badge. So what about all the other cases that people aren't speaking up about or are too afraid to go to the police about? So this seems like something that really police agencies should really take seriously and make, make a major priority to, to never have happen again. I mean, even when like incidents are caught on film, like with Eric Garner, mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 the undercover Plain Coast officer who, who, is, who murdered him um, didn't even go to trial. Right. You know, so it so it just speaks to a larger um, issue of like uh, police brutality and accountability, and um, and how do we fix this broken system? Yeah, and in this case, it's like okay, so there's 13 women speaking up against this guy, saying this this did happen, um, and that makes the case really strong, I think. But what he was banking on is them never speaking up, and like he was he was banking on the system being broken and it never being investigated and the victims not speaking up for it. And so I think it's really, I don't know, the role of our society and the, and the police agencies to make sure that, um, that police officers can't take advantage of it that way. And that it's not, you know, that fixing this problem isn't reliant on people who were victimized having to go to the police about it. Yeah. Especially if they're victimized by the police. Right. Yeah. All right. For the second segment on the show, we're going to talk about um, the Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance, which was uh, repealed by the voters last week, and some persistent uh, bigoted urban legends about transgender people. And for the segment, we're going to bring in a a regular contributor to Bitch, whose name is Leela Janelle. Uh, She's great. She's a transgender woman herself and a writer and covers lots of trans issues and works in trans advocacy. Um, So we're going to call her up. Hi, this is Leela Janelle. Uh, I'm a writer and a trans woman, and I publish in Bitch sometimes. Leela, I'm sorry we have to talk to you about terrible things. I wish we were talking about uh, wonderful things. But instead, we're talking about uh, Houston's Equal Rights Ordinance getting repealed uh, last week by the voters. Right. And I think what really, what I mean, this is such, what really like struck me about this campaign was just, the level of bigotry about this repeal. So Houston is the most diverse city in the United States, and the city put into place an equal rights ordinance last year that would have protected um, LGBT people uh, from discrimination. And then this basically right-wing groups ran a really strong campaign to repeal it. And what their campaign hinged on was the phrase, no men in women's bathrooms, saying that if... If transgender people had uh, anti-discrimination laws in place, then here's how the theory goes. I feel like horrible even saying it out loud, (laughs) but here's how the theory goes. And this is what the campaign was built on to repeal this, was that uh, if transgender people have anti-discrimination laws, then uh, they will go into women's bathrooms and assault cisgender women. So, like, transgender people will pose as cisgender women and then assault women in women's bathrooms. Right. And... This sounds so ludicrous, but it's but it's actually a myth that's been around for for decades. It's a persistent myth about uh, transgender people that they are for some reason like aching to assault women in bathrooms. And so I was hoping you could just sort of talk to us about why this myth persists and what we can do about it. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, I you know, I was actually thinking about it and 
I thought the movie Psycho is exactly like that. <laughs> yeah. Norman Bates dresses up like his mom and then he kills a woman in a bathroom. Oh <laughs> and that movie is super transphobic. It totally needs to be revisited. <laughs> yeah, so like the campaigners in this in this measure were basically like, Houston is going to turn into the movie Psycho if you pass this <laughs> equal rights protection. Right. Yeah, well, it, it was really sad to see because it is just so blatantly hateful and it was sad to see that people fell for it. There just hasn't been a lot of public discussion about trans people and trans women and the sort of humanizing that maybe took place in the 90s and the aughts for the gay and lesbian communities um, just hasn't had a chance to uh, take hold in our culture for trans people the way it has. It's starting to, but it it was really sobering to see that an idea like this wasn't just swatted down the minute it surfaced. Um, I think, I don't know why people, when it comes to public spaces like bathrooms and locker rooms, that's where it seems to, there seems to be a lot of fights around trans people in our culture. And I don't know, like I, when I go there, I'm scared because I'm afraid people are going to like yell at me, but I'm not there to do anything except what everybody else is there to do. Um, and I wish people could get that. Yeah, there's also, while this case is going on in Houston, there's also um, a public school district, um, I think in, in Illinois, that is fighting to um, keep a transgender student from using the girl's locker room. She's a transgender girl who's a student and they're fighting, and I think they went all the way to federal court saying, we don't have to let her yeah. use this locker room. And so there's just this real kind of fear, I think, that people prey on yeah. about those public well, spaces. And it's so patriarchal, too. It's always framed as like, oh, no, our women and our little girls are going to be endangered in the bathroom where we can't protect them. And it's so gross because it's like, you know, you almost think they wish John Wayne would come and make trans people go away. <laughs> the way that they're talking about it. Like like, like um, a vigilante would ride in from the West and protect the bathrooms. <laughs> right. right. Um, I was talking to a friend who's a trans activist uh, just recently, and he was saying he's done some of these campaigns in cities before. And the way they fought back against this was just to take it head on and... So they had community leaders record, you know, PSAs about how this is ridiculous and no one should be saying this. And they canvassed with trans people just going door to door, talking about their lives and answering any questions that people had. You know, they sent out mailers with trans people and allies saying, you know, I'm not afraid to use the bathroom with this person. <laughs> and it sounds like you shouldn't have to do something that elementary, but when the discussion is that low, you have to face it head on. And it seemed like they really just wanted to duck the issue in Houston. And they didn't even frame it as an LGBT rights or LGBTQ rights issue. They kept talking about like veterans and pregnant women and senior citizens, people who already have federal protections. <laughs> They kept bringing that part up instead of saying, like, no, Houston believes that LGBTQ people deserve protections and rights just like everyone else. Um, and so I think to make the myth go away, you just have to stand up to it. You know, it's like a bully. And if people don't use their voices to tell the truth about themselves, um, the bully wins like it did in Houston. I mean, like part of me, yeah, I think I... I 
don't even want to talk about this because it's so like <laughs> it's it's so bad that to to have to to have to say like no transgender people don't want to attack cisgender people in bathrooms i feel like it's some way like legitimizing mm-hmm. that myth you know like is saying is having okay. to repeat that then getting that in people's minds like a like a oh like like that wasn't even on my radar but now i'm worried about it but but you but you seen it be effective to to actually address it head on it doesn't it doesn't seem to legitimize it in that way no i mean i think there's like there's a painful moment when you realize oh my gosh i am being dehumanized this far and you know this is horrible and you know if i was living in houston i don't think i would be happy looking at the people in houston who might have voted against it but I think you have to move past that pain and really just kind of tell your truth. And, um, you know, that's the way change is going to happen. I think people respect it when individuals or groups stand up for themselves and say, like, this is how you need to treat us. You know, we're demanding the same respect that everybody else gets. And I think the absence of that just lets this weird myth grow. Like, you know, I don't know if you saw of like the old white guy wearing a shirt that says no men in women's bathrooms. Yeah, they actually printed up shirts that said no men in women's bathrooms. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, if that guy's telling what he believes, we need to tell what we believe too, or else, you know, there's only one side of the story getting out there. Um, And it's, you know, it sucks. It sucks that like to eradicate this idea that still has, like staying power long after it should a fight like that needs to happen but i think uh trans people and their allies need to be willing to have that fight yeah and i think that um a a lot of this work in terms of um for like cis folks i think that you know like oftentimes when we talk about like racism uh, it's like we we say that like it's not the responsibility of people of color to teach white folks like how racism works or how to dismantle it like white folks have to like work against white supremacy and i think in a case like this it's like like we can't expect for cis folks like myself like we can't expect trans folks to to do all the heavy lifting in like eradicating transphobia and this is one of the situations where like cis folks need to like really think about um how we talk about the issues as well with our our fellow cis people and and like it because we have to also do the heavy lifting and in a case like this it's like um you know i feel like a, a responsibility even though i don't live in houston in terms of like how do we talk about um trans inclusive policies that you know like help everybody and doesn't exclude folks and it's one of those things that when we talk about trans issues it shouldn't be like a silo thing where like folk trans activists do all the work like you know cis activists have to do just as much work if not more because like we're the folks that are like you know it's within our community that's harboring this transphobia yeah and we also have a level of safety yes. you know i mean like i can like i'm i'm less likely to be attacked physically or verbally i think if i speak up about trans issues or just in any regard because i'm a cisgender white woman and so i think there's, there's a level of safety there like i can make this argument without having to worry about my physical safety yeah yeah and it, it's it's funny to think about like well what should the messaging be i'm cis and I don't mind going to the bathroom with a trans person. <laughs> it seems like kind of absurd to say, but maybe that is what needs to happen until other people feel like, oh, well, you know, my peers feel that way too. So I should, you know, kind of grow up and, and think of things the same way. 
Cool. Well, thanks so much, Leela. That's all our questions, I think. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. That was writer Leela Janelle. She writes all the time for Bitch, but you can also find her on Twitter at Leela Janelle. Look her up. Yes, yes. All right, we're at the end of the show where we share one thing we read, one thing we saw, and one thing we heard this week. Amy, I believe you have something you read you want to share. Yes. So I'm trying to get my literary chops in order, and um, I'm reading poetry now, everybody. (laughs) You know, poetry gets a bad rap, and it's a punchline of a lot of things, but there's so much beautiful poetry out there. Yeah, and I think it gets a bad rap because people don't get it, like myself included. Like, I, there's just, oftentimes I go to poetry readings, and I'm just like, oh, what's going on? I'm not understanding these words. Um, but I think that when I read it, like, physically, it's much more easier for me to understand. So I've been trying to, like, get more into poetry. And um, this new book, this new chapbook, little book just came out um, by a local press in Portland, uh, Yes Yes Press, um, by poet and performer writer Fatima Ashkar. It's called After. And I went to see her read last week, and she's amazing. She's, um, she's a performer, and she does this book and word poetry as well. And uh, she, when she was talking about this book, she says that it's called After because it kind of explores that, like the aftermath of um, like sexual assault that she experienced by a male partner. And so this this is a collection that explores that. And there's some like such there's like it's just it's gorgeous and brutal. And there's some like really great poems in here. And uh, there's one I actually wanted to read like the first stanza of it. It's Go for so it. good. It's called Stank Face. Stank Face. <laughs> yes. Um, it goes, each morning I stitch a scowl to my smile. Let my eyes sass every person standing between me and the bus stop. My eyelashes icy, call it survival, call it eyeliner so crisp it could kill a bitch. Oh, so good. That's just the first stanza. It gets better. It literally gets better. It's so amazing. Um, and then there are some other like more traditional poems in there. And then um, there's, this, there's this really interesting poem in there called um, Partial Index of Lies I Have Told My Sister. And it's formatted like an index that you find at the back of a book. Um, and it and it has like page numbers and it'll be like um, like categories like borrow books from her uh, or borrow clothes from her and then it'll have number and the numbers and then it'll have things like condoms comma I used so like lies that she told her sister or like oh I see yeah. yes it's 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 gorgeous and beautiful and then you know and it has the numbers and then um and then you can actually like match the numbers up with like the other events that happened so you can kind of create like a narrative just from this is like this index cool um but it's just it's just beautiful and actually we're gonna i'm going to interview her and she'll be in a future propaganda podcast yeah so listen to that in the meantime it's called after from yes yes press yes by fatima ashgar um we have the same thing that we watched this week (laughs) that we are both in love with (laughs) (laughs) it is the new uh netflix show by aziz ansari and alan yang uh master of none we need you to do an accent. You mean like an Indian accent? You know, Ben Kingsley did an accent in Gandhi and he won the Oscar for it, so. But he didn't win the Oscar just for doing the accent. I mean, it wasn't an Oscar for best Indian accent. You see the social network? The Indian guy is a white guy. No, no, I read that he's 116th Indian. Who cares? If you go back far enough, we're all 116th something. I'm probably 116th black. You think they're gonna let me play Blade? It's so good. It's so good. I wrote this like a million thousand word piece about it for bitchmedia.org. It isn't a million thousand words, but it's it's really gushing <laughs> about how much I love this show. Um, it's just, I think that, and people are kind of going apeshit about it. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why it's, it's, first of all, it's because it's showing stories that like, that 
because it focuses on his life and he's a child of immigrants his parents are from india um but he was born and raised in south carolina and it kind of like it, there's this ep- second episode called Parents where he talks about that experience and it's just one of those things where like there's a whole entire generation of us in our 20s and 30s and our teens or whatever who um, who grew up in America with immigrant parents and we watched and all of us and even folks that didn't have immigrant parents but we all watched this episode and we all literally we all cried because it's so touching and moving and beautiful and, and it's like all of us exist and how come we have not seen this like story reflected to us on screen it's just gorgeous yeah it's so rare to see those stories told on screen and that's part of I think what makes the show really wonderful even I mean I'm not the child of immigrants but but that story is told in such a moving personal beautiful way that it really just kind of gets rid of that idea that like oh shows have to tell only a certain kind of story to be accessible and that's like the argument that media people always make about like oh well this show has to be about white people to make it universal and accessible and relatable and and, yeah and relatable and they talk about that on the show but like as a white person this show is really relatable i think because the stories are beautifully told and because it's about that human connection and that dealing with your parents and i don't have that particular experience of having immigrant parents that makes that powerful in that personal way but i do you know still have parents (laughs) because that's at the core what the story is about it's about like parents and appreciating what they've done for you yeah exactly and so i think i hope that there's like lots of tv executives watching the show and being like well we were wrong aziz (laughs) (laughs) let's put more people who look like aziz uh, like and give them their own shows yeah and it's another thing it's like like there's another episode called indians on tv talking about like racism and white supremacy and how it influences like mainstream television and film and and this notion that like if you're if you're not telling like this white story it's not relatable but it's like you know like people like us like people of color or children of immigrants or, or immigrants we've been watching white media for a long time and and like newsflash not all that shit's relatable to us so who's the us that's that should uh, be yeah, that's really you point. know who mm-hmm. should be like ha- being related related to um so that's just something he also explores and also the show is fucking hilarious yeah it's really funny so it's like it's dealing with all these social issues but in such a wonderful hilarious way yeah yeah and uh it's so good (laughs) (laughs) it's so good it's so funny and and we we want we want aziz to be our new bff so if anybody knows knows somebody who knows somebody who knows aziz and uh can we be your friend yes like <laughs> pass the message because we're really like nice fun funny people i think uh, and we also love love pasta which is a thing that he talks about <laughs> on his show uh, and we want to hang out with him so uh somebody hook us up <laughs> all right we're gonna end the show with a song from the band shopping um this is a british band uh i just saw them in concert they were opening for shannon and the clams uh in the show i saw last week and it's uh, a trio the two guitarists are women rachel and billy are names and they just rocked it so hard they that you know that the venue was kind of like people standing around with their arms crossed looking cool and they started <laughs> playing and like everyone started dancing and got really sweaty and you just can't not dance to this music so um the band is still on tour it's called shopping this is the uh, this is the song straight lines um i love it start dancing right now <laughs> thanks so much for listening to the show thank you Alone, we can suck together and spread lines. It's better than ideal, but all he does is
Hey podcast listeners, have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet, Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org podcast. And be sure to mention propaganda or backtalk when you donate. We'll read some of our listener love on the air during the next shows. Thanks so much. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener-supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. Don't empty-handed when you 